To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new podcast for you. So today I have on David Wise. Uh, you maybe have heard of the name David Wise as a two-time Olympic gold medalist skier. Uh, what an amazing opportunity to get him on the podcast and to, to be able to talk about mental toughness and, and mindset and, and thought process and, and be able to break all this down with somebody that's become the best in the world at something. I mean, he's had to dedicate his entire life, all his training, uh, everything he has to being the best at the world, and he's been able to accomplish it. Uh, David has a few passions in life. You know, one's obviously skiing. The other one is bow hunting. I mean, um, David's been hunting his whole life, but recently he's just fallen in love with archery shooting and bow hunting, the challenge of it. And so to be able to to take all this information on mental toughness and transpose it into extreme backcountry bow hunting, uh, it's just amazing for me. Uh, what a great opportunity. Bow hunting has taken me to, to some wild places and introduced me into some wild people, and, and David's one of them. So this is a real treat. Um, I enjoyed this thoroughly, and I know you guys are going to enjoy it too. Sponsor for today's show, Sig Sauer Optics. Um, Six Hour Optics are great. I've been using their their binos, uh, their Zulu nines. Uh, they just got great glass in them. Um, I also just received their brand new spotting scope. It's an Oscar 8 80 millimeter objective objective lens, and then it's uh, uh, 27 by 55 power. Uh, man, is this thing crisp and clean. I used it in that Wyoming hunt, glassing those mule deer. There wasn't one deer, no matter how far, that I couldn't tell how big he was. Uh, same thing with elk. I've been spotting elk. I mean, I spotted elk um, down down hunting. I mean, a couple times, like 10 miles away, I'd spot elk and then go get closer and see what they are. But uh, it's just great glass. I love using it. Also, Sig Sauer Optics builds the best rangefinders on the planet. Uh, they do angle compensation, uh, last target, first target priority modes. Uh, it's a quick reading, easy to read on the screen, great in low light. And then for you rifle hunters, this BDX system that they have, uh, they actually have it where the rangefinder, the scope, and your phone through an app can all talk together to configure exactly where to aim on that animal. That's uh, an amazing system that offers so much. Uh, so yeah, if you're in the market for a new rangefinder or a complete BDX system, uh, make sure to check out Sig Sauer Optics. Our other sponsor for today's show is Taito Knives. Um, I just absolutely love Taito Knives. These things were built and designed for me. They're a lightweight, replaceable blade uh, knife. Um, they're, they're so lightweight, you don't even notice you have them in your bag. But to have those replaceable blades, I can process an entire elk with one knife. Uh, I don't have to bring in multiple knives or sharpeners or have a bunch of weight. I just, you know, I've got 10 blades that I have with me at all times and my Taito knife, and that'll completely break down an elk, mule deer, antelope. Um, and they're just so razor sharp. They actually make it safer because you never have to force anything or push anything. Um, you know, they they skin through that, that thick elk hide, and, and they just make the process of skinning, 
uh, quartering, boning, they make it so much easier. And then uh, I actually, I love using, um, they have a, a longer fillet knife and I use that for butchering. I can sure get that jerky nice and thin and good cuts and it makes it quicker to butcher. So um, you know, if you guys are in the market for a new knife, a replaceable blade knife, uh, they also have fixed blade knife. Uh, I've been using their, I think it's like it's a mix between a fork and a spoon that attaches to the knife handle there. I've been using that all season. So uh, they, they have some other great items to check out, but just a great company with great products um, and, and super lightweight, ultra lightweight knives. So uh, make sure to check them out, Taito Knives. And with that see man it's just been an amazing hunting season um i've just had time on my side and um so the the first i mean the first real time in my life where i've been able to really take the time i want to and commit myself to it and i've had a bunch of tags in my pocket and i've had failures and i've had successes um but i i've just had the adventure of a lifetime i mean um to be able to push myself my mind and my body to be able to go to these different places and challenge myself against these you know the these different quarries these different you know elk and and mule deer and antelope and uh been to hawaii mouflon sheep it's just been just such an amazing season i'm so fortunate um so it's just been incredible i'm just returning from this montana elk hunt i sit down and and uh, put together a podcast on that real quick on this elk season recap. So I'll get that recorded, released to you guys. Um, but I'm just super excited, you know, back to to everything with Renewed Vigor. But um, I just want to continue to grow this podcast and bring you guys the, the absolute best content. And so um, I got my head down working again. And hunting season isn't over for me, but, you know, the, the big season is, the big early season high country mule deer and elk. And I still got some great hunts coming up. I can't wait. I uh, got some muley rut hunks, hunts coming up and then uh, uh, probably head down for coos deer again. And so um, I still got some great hunts out in front of me, but what a season it's been. Um, I say I'm, I'm so fortunate. And, um, yeah, I've been watching the other Eastman guys having success. Dan arrowed a good bull. I think Ike's killed two nice mule deer now. Um, so we've got a podcast coming up with him next week on Sage Bucks, um, which should be a great one. Cause like I say, he's on a roll too. just great bomber bucks. He's been able to harvest this season so far. And, um, there's been some other success along the way. And so just really cool. I'm going to get over to the Eastman's office and catch up to those guys and record some podcasts and see what everybody's been up to here just as soon as, um, everybody slows down a bit, but, uh, yeah, it's been an amazing season. It's been fun to share with you guys. And, um, yeah, I just want to keep working hard and uh, making this podcast roll on. And I just want to, you know, the, the, the best Western hunting content that we can provide to help you guys be more successful, you know, and in, in, in your hunting endeavors, in your adventure, and also in your life. So um, we're just going to keep that rolling. I've been talking for too long. This is not a solo podcast. This is a great podcast with David Wise, all on mental toughness. Uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. All right, I'm live here with David. Um, just gave him a shout I met David in Lanai. We hunted together out there and, and uh, became friends, and so now I got you on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time, David. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, buddy. Yeah, man. Um, so you were filming a, a project. Um, maybe you can just introduce yourself to kind of 
the guys in the outdoors and um, kind of your background and then talk about your film project a little bit. Yeah. Some guys are probably wondering why you have a two-time Olympic gold medalist skier uh, on Eastman's Elevated. Um, I have been a bow hunter, or I've been a hunter for as long as I can remember, almost. Um, I, I think I tagged along on my sister's first deer hunt when I was like eight years old and was pretty pretty excited by the process, pretty intrigued by the fact that you could go out there and procure your own meat. And, um, you know, I, I was always happy and, and just tickled with the quality of the meat right from the start, right at that young age. Um, so when I turned 12 and was able to go out and hunt myself, get my own hunting license, I did and went out with my dad and shot a little spork uh, mule deer my first year and, um, you know, got to eat the eat the tenderloins that we grilled over the fire that night. And it's just been a, it's been a, something that's been a part of my life ever since. Um, but I would, I would have classified myself as a sort of a, I don't know, a recreational hunter. Uh, in those early days, I would do it once a year. Um, in Nevada, our, in terms of opportunity, we're not super high. We're, it, it, quality uh, is certainly high in Nevada, but uh, quantity of is not super high. Um, and that's that's kind of one of those double-edged swords, right? right? If you want to have a bunch of quality animals around, then you can't have a bunch of tags out there because then the then the the, uh, the mature bucks just get knocked down and, and it, it brings kind of the, the quality of the herd down. So um, I was a recreational hunter and would hunt once or twice a year, but always loved the meat, always loved having it as part of my diet. And then I got really into, actually, after the my first Olympics in Sochi, my buddy Remy um, gave me a bow and said, hey, I know that you're like kind of overwhelmed by all this attention you've been getting lately. I think this bow thing is for you. You need to try shooting this compound bow. It's a really good, almost form of meditation. You're going to really love it. And he was right. He, he saddled me up with a lifelong addiction. And once I got into bow hunting, then my addiction level with hunting in general really went to the next level. So I went from a guy who uh, hunting was only part of my identity to in terms of what things I was really passionate about to, you know, one of my main things. It's like skiing and hunting ranks very closely after skiing for me now. So um, it's kind of been a fun adventure because I went from hunting once or twice a year in Nevada to now um, bow hunting every year in Nevada, as well as putting in in all the other states, hunting Utah pretty regularly. Uh, I'm actually headed up a little, in a couple of weeks uh, up to Montana to chase, chase antelope. So uh, it just grows each year. And, and my wife always kind of shakes her head. She's like, another one, another hunt, another, where are you going next? <laughs> um, and that, that, that snowballs into cool opportunities like what we had in Hawaii. And um, if you told me five, 10 years ago that I would be bow hunting in Hawaii, I would probably would have told you you're crazy. Um, but it just seems like a natural progression now. So sort of circling back to your original question, what, what, what film project am I working on? Um, <clears throat> I have this fascination with the sport of archery because uh, for one thing, I love it. I just, have fallen in love with it right from the start and the deeper I get the more I like it it's one of those things for me where uh I didn't I didn't get into it and then hit a plateau and say oh that was fun now I'm bored of it, it was, it's just the better I get at it the more technical I get the more knowledge I get the more I love it and it is such a mental sport 
And part of my skill or part of my um, success in skiing has been based around uh, my ability to sort of be undaunted no matter what's going on around me. I've, I've won contests with injuries. I've won contests in the middle of having strep throat. Um, this, this past Olympics in Pyeongchang, I had my skis blow off my feet uh, sort of unnecessarily twice on two of three runs and still landed my third run and won it. So mental toughness is something that I'm always striving to grow at. And um, so actually archery has been a big help for me has been a big help for my skiing career because um, just because of the meticulousness of it, sort of the, the ritual, not the ritual, the, the regiment of it. Um, you learn how to break the, break each shot down into a process so that you can do the same process each time, no matter what terrain you're in, no matter what situation you're in. So I fell in love with this, this sport of archery. And now my theory that I'm testing is, Essentially, I kind of came into the archery game with a bit of an advantage in terms of having started fresh out of the box. Um, I have all this mental training that I've been doing my whole life as a professional athlete, and it translated very quickly into the sport of archery and especially into bow hunting. And a lot of my, I mean, as you know, spot stock mule deer hunting is hard. It is one of the most futile pursuits you can do. Some of my buddies who got into it took three or four years to even get anything. And I came out right out of the gate my first couple of years and knocked down a nice buck, knocked down a, a big bull elk, um, shot an antelope. And everybody was just like, how are you so good at this so naturally? And I wouldn't say that I'm good at it, but I certainly do have a pretty high conversion rate when it comes to if you spend enough time on your feet out there in the zone, you're going to have opportunities. And just because of my ability to stay cool, calm, and collect under pressure in skiing, that translated really well to staying cool, calm, and collect under pressure in hunting. So I would have just a slightly higher conversion rate than my friends, and that's why I've, I've done well in the bow hunting side. So now I'm trying to take that theory and test it on the target archery side. So I'm essentially self-taught and didn't really know anything about archery and had, I wouldn't say bad technique, but just raw technique when it came to shooting and i was talking to a friend of mine paul tedford who's a professional target archer and i was like hey man what do you think what are you, what's your flaw what, what's your theory about this mental toughness can i take this this ability that i have as a com good competitor and translate it to archery and he's like yeah absolutely especially because and it, one of my favorite comments he made was if you can shoot as well as you do with as bad of form as you have, who knows how well you could shoot with good form. And so that that's kind of where it all snowballed from there. So um, Paul and I are working on a project together, which includes everything from him teaching me how to shoot better to uh, both of us going and kind of shooting as a team at a big target archery uh, tournament. And then I'm taking him antelope hunting up in Montana. Uh, and so it's going to be a fun project. It's going to be probably, it's going to be, we're going to put it out in four different pieces. Um, but it's going to kind of encompass all of those things that I just went on this giant rabbit trail about where there's the mental toughness aspect and me sort of helping him with his mental game, him helping me with my archery game and both of us kind of enjoying the, just the sport of bow hunting together. Um, and so it's going to be a four piece 
it's almost going to be a film, but we're going to put it out in four pieces. Man, what an awesome project. Uh, what a great explanation and background, too, David. Uh, the passion runs deep, right? And how you do one thing is how it you totally do does. everything. And so, like, it's no surprise to me that it translated really well to bow hunting. Um, and, and I like the way you put it about how you know, your conversion rate was just better than your buddies. Like you have to create those opportunities, but I like how you said with those opportunities, being able to keep cool and collected, execute a good shot, your conversion rate was better. Therefore you saw success faster than other guys because that, that mental hurdle, like so much in life, it, it's so mental when you really break it down. And bow hunting is definitely one of those things. And, and shooting at the tournament level, you talk to those guys too, and um, it, it's the same thing there. It's being able to control your emotions. And so, like, like, what is your process or how did you go about it? Like, when you created a, a shooting process for shooting at animals, like, how do you keep cool? How do you explain that? Like, how do you keep calm in the moment and not let your adrenaline spike off the charts and send that arrow over his back? Like, what, what's your secret or what's your process, David? Yeah, that's a great question. That's something I think even the best of us are, are constantly trying to refine. So I'm not going to pretend that I know the answer. That's going to work for everybody. Um, but uh, I sort of stumbled into what I'm what I'm currently doing uh, by doing some some like um, focused meditation, where I was trying to get better at clearing my head. And uh, one of the meditation coaches I was listening to said. Um, meditation isn't about not thinking it's about almost conscious about almost consciously letting the thoughts go and um, I've translated that into a lot of aspects of my life but one of the major ones was archery where um, the reality is there is no way to not get excited about a big old buck if you're not excited about a big old buck you're probably not in the right realm like you, sh you really shouldn't be doing it because that's what we do it for. That's what that's what gets us excited and makes us feel alive. So instead of like almost trying to force yourself to not be excited about it, you almost embrace that excitement level and you say, I am excited about this. But remind yourself that every shot is the same as any shot that you took on the range. OK, that deer is exactly 43 yards. How many times have I taken a 43 yard shot on the range? How often do I miss? That's right. I never missed that shot on the range, so I'm not going to miss this one either. And if you just have those those subtle mental cues for yourself, you know, pick a spot, um, make sure you whatever release device you're using. I, I I personally hunt with a trigger release just because I like to keep it simple. Um, but squeeze till it goes off. Don't punch it. Don't yank it. Don't force it to go off. Just squeeze till it goes off. Keep that pin right where you want it to be until it does go off. Um, you know, and 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 shooting enough where your process is really dialed. And, and I, for, I personally like to practice under really um, sort of intense circumstances. So rather than if I say I have enough time to shoot 40 arrows or 20 arrows or whatever any, any average guy would have getting ready for bow hunting season, um, rather than just go out on the range and shoot 20 arrows, even if it takes me le more time and I actually get less shots out, I'll do wind sprints so that my heart rate's super elevated and then shoot, or I'll do push-ups, or I'll do a couple of shots from shooting from my knees or shooting from my butt or just practicing all these different things. Cause the reality for me is in most of the hunting scenarios I've been, I, I do most of my hunting open country spot and stock. And I've, 
I think I've shot one thing standing flat-footed out of, I don't know, 15, 20 big game animals I've got with my bow now. So I just know the more you practice in these compromised environments, in these compromised scenarios, the more likely you're going to execute well in the moment. And I, I actually translate that into visualization as well, where anytime I have a situation, um, I mean, my first year of, of deer hunting was, I would say, 90% failed stocks. And then that 1%, that, that 10% was one stock that I succeeded on. So I took all nine of the, all, all 90% of those failed stocks. And I just put them into my mental, almost my mental library. And then I would think about, okay, what went wrong and how could I have done that differently for it to have not gone wrong? And then I'll visualize the way that I should have executed it so that it's now, not only is it in my mistakes library, but I actually have the corrected version in my mental library as well. So that if I ever have a situation that's anywhere similar to that, I'm naturally going to follow uh, the pathway towards the corrected version. And just establishing those mental pathways to me is one of the most powerful things that you can do as a bow hunter. That's something that I've done as an athlete and it's been immensely helpful. Um, I'll, I'll actually visualize in skiing, I'll visualize things uh, in the worst of conditions and the best of conditions. So if there's a per particular trick or a particular run that I want to do, I'll actually visualize that run in ideal conditions, and then I'll visualize it in completely not ideal conditions. And that way, no matter what comes, comes at me, I kind of have a mental path for it. And I think that's a really uh, sort of overlooked thing yeah, that you can use in bow hunting as well. Man, I think you're right. There's so much um, good information there, like those those pathways. And that's wild what you say, too. I do a lot of visualization as well, but I like how you visualize the best-case scenario, perfect, perfect circumstance. That animal steps out. He's 40 yards broadside. You know the range. You execute the shot. But it's also good to ready your mind for, for like hurdles that you're going to come across and things that you're going to have to overcome. Like it's not even a perfect – it's never a perfect world in bow hunting. Like just this morning, you know, we were chatting before I went out, but I, I went out antelope hunting this morning. Um, I got a couple of really good plays. And I got this buck that I stalked into. The does didn't know I was there. Got my camera set up. Everything was right. The buck stepped out broadside. I had a good range. But they were kind of on alert, and they were looking more to my right than at me. They didn't know I was there. Had a good range on the buck broadside, drew back, you know, pull, pull, pull. And those mantras, you mentioned that as well. I think a mantra of your most important step of shooting and keep repeating that on the hunt on the stock as you're getting close, like reminding yourself of that. And for me, it's pull, pull, pull on my release. Like you said, don't mm -hmm. punch your release, let it aim, let it break. And I did that on that buck. My pin settled really quick. Uh, pull, 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 my shot broke. And that antelope was three steps out of there before my arrow ever got there. Like it's, oh, man. It, it's not a perfect <laughs> world, right? You can right. do everything right and do your job right. And that buck can jump your string. And so when you're visualizing, like I like to visualize a miss or I like to visualize things going wrong or, or um, you know, like for me, like lightning's a big one for high country mule deer. I like to visualize being in those lightning storms because I know I'm going to be there. And it seems just like you said, when you create that pathway, it's like you've already been there. You know what to do. And so like just doing that in your mind puts you so many steps above, you know, 
not visualizing or 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 not trying to come up with worst and and in best case scenarios you know i think that's so important yeah it just makes those those dire situations that you get into that much less daunting uh because we all like you said in bow hunting you almost have to expect the unexpected it's like you never really know what's going to happen and and that's a great example you had. There's a lot of times when you can do everything right and things still go wrong in bow hunting. Um, my biggest, my biggest story from Hawaii was, uh, the, the one stock I felt like I really had a good play on and really did everything right. Um, we had those prevalent trail wind or trade winds that were just constant. They were almost, they were almost completely dependable. And, for one afternoon, literally one afternoon, the whole trip, the wind got kind of, it kind of died down. And that was the one stock that where I had a wind swirl and I was 40 yards away from the biggest ramp I saw the whole week. And he busted off and decided he wasn't going to be there anymore. And you can't really expect that. I, I, I did everything right. I played the wind and it just got a, I just got a weird dead spot for like five minutes and it swirled. And that was that. Um, so you have to, it's good to visualize too those failures because anybody who doesn't doesn't learn to um, expect failure at one point or another is is delusional. My one of my one of my philosophies is to hope for the best and expect the worst. Right? It's like I absolutely hope everything goes perfect. I hope that deer steps out of forty yards and I smack him, but I expect that to not happen almost in bow hunting and and learning how to do things like um, you know even just learning how to adjust on the fly. I, I think that that's one of the things that has really helped my conversion rate uh, in terms of stock to success conversion has been uh, just learning how to field range and, and know how far five yards is from the other thing. Of course, we all want to have a perfect range on the animal and take a, take a perfectly ethical shot. But I've realized pretty quickly in bow hunting that if you don't learn how to adjust three or four or five yards on the fly, you're never going to get a shot almost. I mean, I've, I've, like I said, I've, I've knocked down maybe 15 big game animals with my bow now. And two of them were perfect stocks, perfect situations where I knew the range and I shot everything else has been, Oh, they're actually five yards closer than I thought. Oh, I thought he was going to come out behind that tree. He came out behind this one or, Oh, he was supposed to go straight across from me and be broadside, but actually he's walking directly at me. What do I do now? You know, and just being able to not only reach your rangefinder quickly and smoothly, but set it down quickly and smoothly, get your pin adjusted quickly and, and make the shot like that. Being able to do those things is really helpful and useful, but unless you want to go out there and just learn the hard way for a long time, you have to do that in your practice as well. Yeah, um, I like what you're saying. Adapting on the fly to the conditions you're giving, like you're the being able to make quick decisions in that fog of adrenaline, like it's almost like being in a car wreck and then trying to make great decisions in those few microseconds of a car wreck. Like that's what the stocks like. It seems like, and it seems like those decisions you make or or adapting, like you say, giving it another five yards because you drew back. And, and that deer kept stepping, kept walking, and so you're adding yards in your head. But doing that is the difference between killing that deer and not, because he moved totally. five yards, and if you shot him for the range you had, you shot under him. So I, I really like what you're saying, being able to adapt on the fly. 
and also like being able to trust your skills to to really move inside bow range and patience really kills the buck of letting things develop and happen you know letting the buck make the last move but knowing what you can get away with and what you can't when you get close those nuances of the stock it's so important and that creates you know more opportunities and i notice like when i'm hunting with with bow hunters or maybe i'm hunting with with a new bow hunter out there like I know just those little moves he makes, like when he draws his bow, you know, he brings up his bow too quick or he makes a big totally. movement or doesn't move slow enough. Like those little tiny movements in there, they give you so much more opportunity than the next guy. Like you might get twice as many shots just because you practice your draw and you don't have much movement and you can draw really slow. You know, you can keep low. And like you said – um, I like to get my bow absolutely dialed, and then I like to do what you do, where you practice tough shooting positions. I love shooting it at 3D targets. You know, you shoot at an orange dot all the time to make sure your bow's on, but really being able to pick a place on that 3D target is so important, too. Yeah. Uh, shooting your uphill, shooting your downhill, like like all that pays dividends when you're in the field. All that practice, all those tougher conditions, and and a lot of times I like to look at it like in in odds or percentages like if i was to look at an 80 yard shot you know in my backyard in my flip flops you know i'm probably 90% on that shot but you know in my backyard all of a sudden i get to my knees or i stand on one foot or i do sprints like you're doing and shoot or push ups and wear my arms out all of a sudden that 80 yard shot i'm about 70% on you know mm. and then like you throw in the fog of adrenaline and an animal out there you know, I may be 50% on that shot. And so, like, I want a higher percentage opportunity. And I learned a long time ago, like, I want to get close and kill them, you know? Yeah. And so I know if I can sneak into that 50, my odds just skyrocket. All yep. of a sudden, in my backyard, I'm 100%. Off my knees, I'm 100% with an animal there. So all of a sudden, you know, shooting at this animal, just like you said when you trust on the reins that you can always make that shot, I know in my head that, man, I get inside 50, you know, I'm, I'm 90, 95%. Those are good yep. odds. That's what I'm That's looking the for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, you brought up something that I was going to mention earlier too. the, um, one of the mistakes that I made early on and, and I've seen, and I probably continue to make, um, is the fact that once you're in range, it's almost as if like all of your patience up to the point of getting in range doesn't matter at all because how patient you can be when you're in range really converts to success in, in those opportunities. And kind of like the car accident uh, theory that you're talking about, we almost go into this um, fight or flight instinct when you get really close and you know that that deer is inside bow range and you have this natural tendency. I personally have this natural tendency to, oh, he's in range, draw back quick, quick, get a shot off. And that is the absolute worst thing that you can do as a bow hunter because, first of all, you're rushing the shot. Second of all, you're rushing the shot process. And so you're, you're, first of all, you're bringing down your odds of making a good shot at all, but you're also decreasing your chances of even getting a shot. Um, I had one of my, one of the stocks that I went on in, in, uh, in Hawaii. This is a lesson that I've, like I said, I've already learned this lesson a couple times, but I had to learn it again one more time. Um, there were a couple of axis deer that had seen me or smelled me. I'm not, I'm not really sure what they had done, but they were aware of me. 
And but they were there at 50 yards. And so I was like, well, this is wheelhouse 50 yards. I got this. And instead of either ducking out of sight slowly and drawing my bow back out of sight or just doing a really steady, slow draw, which I practice just like you do. I just drew the bow back, slammed the back wall, expecting the deer to still be there when I got my pin settled. Of course, they saw me do that and they ran off. And I was like, I just wanted to slap myself in the forehead and be like, dude, you know what you're supposed to do in that situation. But I went in autopilot and totally forgot everything I've ever learned. And so, yeah, it's really good to remind yourself how patient you have to be in range of those things because their ears, their eyes, Everything is so heightened, especially once you're inside 50 yards, 60 yards, 70 yards in inside that range. Anything you do is going to be multiplied. So, yeah, that's 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 one of the things. It's hard to learn, but uh, super valuable if you can. Yeah, you're, you're so right. I don't know why the brain does that. It just it forces you. You just want to see if he's there. You just he's in bow range. You want to draw back, but. Like you said, the more patience you have in that situation, the higher your odds go. And I thought I had patience two years ago. Like, I just keep evolving this patience to where, like, even in bow range, like, I, I just um, I don't want to expose myself or I don't want to push the stock to failure. Like, I just want to hang out in bow range and kind of let things happen and let that animal dictate to me. And, and it's so hard – Especially you get that animal there and he's broadside and he's in your range. It's so easy to just want to try to draw back and try to shoot him. But a lot of times the right move to make, if they don't know you're there and they're just looking around, is just to wait and watch their heads. And a lot of times the herd, they won't even allow you to get drawn. Like you have to wait until they're feeding or they're, you know, they're, they're preoccupied with something else or they're not on high alert. So you can get drawn on a relaxed animal, you know, when he's down. But man that that patience is so key and something that we we all just have to work on constantly um, constantly yeah and well and then you'll have a situation where you could have hurried and cut him off or you know something like like every situation's different but i patience is king isn't it in bow hunting yeah yeah that that's a good point though too and and that's one of the one of the i think the what what separates a decent hunter from a really good hunter is knowing when to move and when not to because um especially like if you if you go so patience is ex is extremely useful when hunting you know spawn stock mule deer but if you're hunting elk that are on the move constantly it's a totally different game sometimes you have to move fast actually in order to get those shot opportunities and if you're too patient you're just never going to get a chance to shoot uh, so understanding like that's almost an innate instinct that you have to train okay they're not aware of me i can actually move in quicker uh or you know or maybe maybe they're if they are alert then you move extra slow or you actually go all the way up and around them so you can stay out of sight the entire time or whatever you have to do but that's that's one of the hardest things to learn that's something you almost can't teach is that instinct for when to move quickly and when to move slowly and one of the biggest uh one of the biggest deterrents for me uh, with I'm recovering from a broken femur in April. And one of the things that I didn't really think about or realize that I was going to be inhibited by was the fact that I can usually move very quickly at a very low profile. I mean, we're talking crawling or crouching or whatever, because I'm, I'm constantly training strength and core. Anyways, I can usually move super low profile, 
pretty rapidly. And that was one of the major things that I noticed in Hawaii was that I just didn't have that ability. I couldn't crouch and walk the way I normally do. I, I couldn't stay low as the way I normally do. And uh, so that's another thing that, that people don't even realize that you can, you can give yourself almost an advantage is um, training strength in those compromised positions because a lot of, a lot of stalking is bending awkwardly or crawling or standing on one leg in a weird spot or whatever, you know? And, uh, so that was certainly something that for one thing, I was grateful to be challenging myself in that way with my leg recovery. Um, and each day I actually got a little bit better and I was like, okay, this is actually, I joke about the fact that I use bow hunting as training for skiing, but in this situation, it was actually true because day one, I was in a lot of pain and day four, I was like, actually, I can do this pretty well. I'm, I'm getting better. Yeah, that was wild. You went for it. But yeah, you bring up such a, a good point in that like uh, patience. You're right. It's it's one of the biggest assets we can have, but it's a fine line. Um, and it all comes down like every situation, every animal is different, you know, and so each yeah. situation is approached different. And I really like how you brought up uh, mule deer and then elk. Well, elk, you're always trying to keep up. And if you hunt them too patiently, you're never going to get into them or they're going to walk away from you. Uh, it, um, you're so right. And so in, in everybody as individuals, I notice with hunting different people, there's different styles. My, you know, like our buddy Janus is a really patient hunter, really slow. And like Sean is more of an aggressive hunter. They both kill things and they both get it done. Um, but there's different styles and it is finding that right mix. And then it's developing your instincts, just like you were saying, like, um, instincts come from experience and learning from those experiences and yep. and the more you can draw from those the more that goes into your instincts and, and it affects your decision making on the stock and so then you're deciding when to hustle when to move slow you're deciding when it's right to go in and, and when it's not because there's there's so many gray areas there that there is no right and wrong or there is no true answer for any scenario, you know, how fast you should go or what you should do or how you should approach. Yeah. And that's a good point you brought up too about Janus because that was one of the first things that struck me was how patient of a hunter he was. But then he goes out and shoots this big old ram and he's telling us the story about how he shot it. And he's like, yeah, I knew it was almost last light. I had to cut this thing off. And so I was sprinting downhill and I'm like, that's I'm right. thinking to myself, all I can think of is how you have been the most patient guy I've seen and done the most glassing, and yet you're cutting one of these things off and running downhill, and he gets a shot and, and kills it. So that just shows that 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 shows that those innate in instincts are really well trained for him. He's like, hey, there is an opportunity. I've spotted an opportunity, and I, now I need to move quickly in order to, to execute it. And I think that's one of the biggest things is to know – to know when to slow down and when to move fast. <laughs> like um, yeah. even on a muley stock that is so methodical and planned out and patient and done. But a lot of times I'm spotting these bucks, you know, I'm an hour and a half, hour away, sometimes two hours away from getting to this buck to making the stock and the approach. And so like I have to move really quick at first because I don't want them to change beds or to move or I want totally. them to still be there while, you know, when I get there. So like I've killed bucks that I've called the marathon buck before and other deer where, man, I, I just put a pace on them to try to get up and around them. And so 
You're right. It's like knowing when to move at the right pace. And the closer you get, the slower you need to move, no matter what. Even if you're trying no to cut them what. off, yep. the closer you get to to like a breaching over a ridge or exposing yourself over a ridge, just the slower you need to move. You know, you can't move slow enough. Right. Yeah, we're, we're not trying to catch them. We're trying to shoot them with a bow. That that's the thing is like I think you I think that's part of why we have those instincts that we were talking about earlier where it's like he's in range go get him you know shoot him quick and and that's why we have to fight those instincts is because we're actually not hunting the way we necessarily always have um, whereas if you're trying to cut them off and actually tackle them then you do have to be have that burst of speed at the end but like you said the closer you get the slower you have to go. You can get, you can even get away with quite a bit of movement at 400 yards, but you can't get away with any movement inside 100. So, you know, you can, if they're 400 yards away and, and they're moving and, they're, and you kind of want to cut them off, then you can get away with a little bit more movement because you have to catch up to them. But once you're inside 100, every movement you make is going to get is going to be seen, and you know they're going to react to it too. So yeah, it's oh man, what a fascinating pursuit. <laughs> this whole thing of bow hunting it's it's so I, I as you can tell just just from the way you and i talk about it the the addiction runs deep and it is such a satisfying thing to do uh yeah i'm so stoked like how introspective you are and how how you've um I, well i just like how you compare it so much to like um you know your your skiing and and being i mean like you're the best in the world at your skiing and have become that, you know, through through your physical training and mental training. And I love that you put that same approach into bow hunting. And then you've gone down all the rabbit holes, too. Like, it's not just that you want to be good at bow hunting, but now you're into target archery and trying to go down that rabbit hole, which I've been down, too. Um, it, it's just um, it's really cool to see your approach to the whole thing. And I can't wait to see your film come out. And uh, it's just incredible what you've done, like, with your injury to your femur. Like, in Hawaii, I think you were only three months out from breaking your femur and already hunting some of the toughest country I've ever been in with all that lava rock. And in those injuries, I think they're as tough on us, and, and maybe you can attest to this better than I can, but it seems like they're as tough on us physically as they are mentally. Absolutely. I, th I, I think they're almost harder on us mentally than physically. Uh, especially that one for me, because, um, there was so much of that. I, I, I can't even speak about it in the past tense because now I'm, now I'm three and a half months out and I'm, st I'm still in pain every single day, but there was so much of it where, um, the progress was so incremental that it was hard to notice unless I was very conscious of it. And, um, that's why I do that's why challenging myself to do something hard and certainly uh probably more difficult than it should have been or I don't know how many people would have gotten out there three months after a a, a spiral fractured shattered femur Not many. Would, have, would have been out there hunting <laughs> Hawaii but I was I wasn't a, I didn't let that that deter me. I was like, look, I'm going to go out there. First of all, I'm not going to take unnecessary risks. I'm not going to go get myself s stuck out there or anything. But I think I can do it and I'm going to go try. And um so I was actually able that was a situation where I was able to notice the progress. Um uh, but the hardest thing for me and I think the hardest thing for a lot of people is um 
if you look at things from a week to week basis or a month to month basis, it's easy to no notice progress. But if you're talking moment by moment, it's really hard to recognize that you're, that you're even getting better. Whether you're dealing with a sprained ankle or you're dealing with a shattered femur like I am, um, you have to recognize that it's a process and it's going to take a while. And um, that's where the, I was most mentally daunted is every day I'd wake up and I, I would go through almost a roller coaster of uh, impatience where I'd wake up in the morning. I'd be like, OK, that's right. Remember, Dave, you still got your legs. You still have the ability to heal. You're going to be all right three to four months from now. It's all good. And then I'd get about halfway through the day and I'd be like, man, I'm still in pain. This leg's still killing me. My knee is still swollen. I'm frustrated. I'm, I'm over this. I'm so tired of it. And then I'd have to like take a moment and remind myself, oh, that's right. Even though it still hurts a lot, it's actually hurting ever so slightly less than it was last week. And even though I'm still swollen and I don't have my range of motion back, I have more range of motion than I had last week. And so it was just a constant process of reminding myself, oh, I am getting better. I am getting better. And that that to me has been is one of those things that I could apply to a lot of things in my life, whether it's a whether it's a professional goal that you want to reach or um, a, a personal goal. Maybe it's maybe, you know, maybe you want to be the, a, a little better of a bow hunter than you were last year. If you focus on just the moment that you're in right now and you have and you kind of forget what you were like before, then you won't even notice the progress. But um, if you can recognize where you were and how far you've come, then you'll be a lot more satisfied. You can realize, OK, maybe this isn't everything I hoped for. Like I said, have high expectations or have high hopes and low expectations. It's not everything I hoped for, but I still have made progress. I've still gotten a little bit better. Man, it's just like it's um, it's like everything in life. It's just perspective and the way you look at it, right? You can have it haunt you and drag you down to where you're not active and you say, oh, I'm not going to be able to hunt Hawaii. I'm not going to go out. My leg isn't healed enough. But it's it's like all the way you look at things, you know? Totally. And But it, it takes constant reevaluation, right? Like you can't just say that you're going to be happy and you're happy. You have to almost work at it and you have to – like break it down a little bit in your mind to be able to look at it with perspective and go, okay, I am going to heal. Like you said, I, you know, I am going to get better three months down the road. I am going to get like, that's the way I need to look at this situation. You know, that, yep. that this is just a hurdle. This is just a day in the journey of getting better and getting healed up. But man, like that perspective, whether it's an injury or whether it's like you say, your professional life or your family or whatever it is, uh, a lot of it just comes down to, to how you look at things. Yeah. And like you said, you, you have to make a plan. If you don't have if you don't have goals and you don't have plans, then you might get somewhere. But even once you get there, you're not really going to recognize where you're at. So, you know, I, I always I'm, I'm a huge proponent for setting goals um, in everything you do. I have such a I've, I've developed such a. Uh, militant almost mindset about life because I've been a professional athlete for so long and I've learned to apply the things that I've learned in athletics to the rest of my life and I've learned how important goal setting is so anything that you feel like is worth your time is something you should write down goals about whether you love the game of pool and you want to be able to beat your buddies at pool write it down I know it sounds silly, and I'm just using this as as kind of like an out out of the out of the box example, just to to give people a feel for it. Write it down. I want to beat Dale at pool. 
And so then the, the first time you play him, you write it down, you say, you say, Dale beat me five games out of seven. Uh, I won two. And then you say, okay, well, I, I wasn't making my cuts very well. I was overcutting or undercutting every time. And so then, then you, maybe you, the next time you get to practice or you get to play with somebody else, you say, okay, I'm going to try to do a little bit better at making my cuts. And then the next time you, you play Dale, maybe you win three out of seven games instead of two but you've made progress. And so having whatever the goal is in your life, like you said, there's so many different realms that you and I both live in. Um, but there's, there's some kind of a goal for each one. Uh, for me, I, I, I look at my family as one of the most important things that I do. And so I write those things down right, right alongside the things that I want to accomplish professionally, whether I'm trying to, uh, finish a book I've been working on or, you know, do well at the X games this coming season or whatever. I write those things down, but I also write down, want to spend more time with my son. I want to take him fishing. I promised him I would, and I haven't done it yet. That's on my list of things that I need to do. Oh man, David. Yeah. That's, um, it's, that's so good for, for all facets of life. Like you're saying to write it down is you're stating what you want and what you want to get better at. Um, I'm the same way where I write everything down. I need to be better at writing down like my family goals like that and really putting it into writing, uh, you know, like breaking it down exactly how I want to do it. Um, I think that uh, that's so great to hear like that making goals. And it seems like you make like a larger goal. Like you say the X games goal or say, you want to kill a 180 inch deer, um, you know, and then it's setting other goals inside of that, you know, like what's going to totally. help me accomplish that? Well, I need to become a better shot. Okay. So let me break down my shooting. I need to go to more 3d tournaments this year. I need to shoot every single day, this many arrows. I need to get together with buddies more, whatever those are, you know, you know, there's macro goals to that, to that larger picture goal that you're after, you know, and so, totally. and, and breaking it down, whether it's fitness and stalking and then really working towards that goal and putting in the effort. And a, like another big step for me is like, if I really want something verbalizing it, it, telling somebody, yep. telling my wife, it almost holds me accountable, like writing it down. You know, totally. if I if I really want it, I have to be I have to be serious with myself and and know that I can achieve it if I work hard towards it. And so you're right, writing it down, verbalizing it, making goals, you know, making smaller goals within within that bigger picture, and, and um, you know, that's that's what charges me up and keeps me working hard every day. Is that um, you know that that bow hunting or these endeavors are so difficult and you're, you're, um, you're never reaching your, your max capacity. You're, you're never, you know, stop learning or you're just always continuing to grow and get better. And that's what I like in life. Yep. And, and you have to, um, I, I think that writing it down, part of the reason I encourage people to write it down, um, a lot of my goals are just in my notes app on my phone. And the, the reality is where everybody has a phone that they carry around in their pocket now. So um, I used to carry around a competition notebook and now I don't even bother. I'm like, honestly, I'm more likely to write it down if I'm just using the notes app on my phone. And uh, but the reason I encourage people to, to write those things down is you take ownership of it. It's not just something that only you know anymore. Once even once you write written it down, somebody else could find it later and be like, oh, he wanted to accomplish this. So you almost put it out into the world. You put this mentality out into the world. And like you said, it's great to have accountability partners too. Uh, my wife and I are constantly talking about what we hope to accomplish. What does she hope to accomplish? What do I hope to accomplish? And that way, 
you know, somebody else can talk to you about it. Hey, you did want to kill a 180 inch mule deer. How's that going for you? You know, and um, going back to your thing about macro goals and micro goals, that's one of the most important things that if, if we're going to really talk about the, the goal setting conversation, um, you have to have both. You can't have one or the other. Somebody who sets giant goals is just a dreamer. Um, and somebody who only sets small goals is just too much of a realist. And you have to have a balance of both. You have to shoot for the stars, but you also have to set the stepping stones to get yourself there. So I always, I always set my goals in, in almost three different categories. There's these big lofty goals like, you know, I want to go to the Olympics for t archery in, in some unnamed number of years. Or, and that's a, that's a lofty goal. That's something that's like way long-term. Okay. So what's something between me and that goal that I could set as a goal to, to that, that would be on that same path. Okay. So I need to be, I need to be able to make a little bit of money in archery. So I set that as like a mid range goal. And then you have, okay. So you have the, the pie in the sky, long, long-term thing. Then you have the mid range thing, and then you have to set daily goals to get yourself there. Okay, well, obviously, I'm not going to be able to make it as a professional archer if I don't shoot any tournaments. This past year, this summer, I shot one tournament, and I did okay. Uh, I can't really expect myself to do well if I only shoot one tournament a year. That's just not realistic. So, okay, I need to shoot a couple more tournaments, and then I go into the process of actually planning those tournaments into my schedule. All right, it's on the Google Calendar. It's not going anywhere. I have to do it. Um and then daily practice and okay, I need to, I need to work on my shot technique. I need to uh, implement some of these things that Paul taught me and stuff like that. So then you have, you have a pathway. You have to establish, you have to establish a pathway for the things that you want to accomplish in the same way I was talking earlier about establishing mental pathways, uh, for the moments, the, the intense moments and how you're going to act when you get there. Man, I love that. Uh, what a great way to break it down and explain it to all of us as well, because you're right that that long term goal can be years in the making. And if that's the only thing in your head, you just never get there. But you have to lay brick by brick to build that wall to eventually get there. And, you know, it proofs in the pudding like, um, you know, it had to seem so far fetched for you to want to go to the Olympics for skiing and then to want to to win and to win a gold medal and then to come back and win another one. Like those were such pie in the sky dreams, but you were able to break it down in between there and then break it down into monthly, weekly, daily goals. So you were able to continue to put in the work and put brick by brick until you could build that and accomplish your pie in the sky. Man, I, I really like that approach. Yeah, it almost enabled me to 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 do the daily work because where things really break down in terms of accomplishing your goals is the day to day grind that's uncomfortable. And I always tell people, I think that that um, one of my greatest assets as a professional athlete is the fact that I can be uncomfortable for longer than anybody else because I've been training my body for so long and most of the progress you make is in those super compromised positions. I spend a lot of time uh, in the gym doing balance oriented exercises where I am at the, like the deepest degree of knee flexion uh, that I can handle. Um, not to where I'm going to cause an injury, but to where I'm training strength in those compromised positions. And, and so I'm, I'm 
and you're constantly pushing your body to the limit. You're trying to find what the limit is, and that is not comfortable. When you're right, when you're like one percent or two percent away from passing out, that's not a nice feeling. But you have to get there to know how to know where that line is. And so being able to be uncomfortable is important, especially as an athlete, but it's important as a person too. And that's where things often break down is when it goes, you, you go, oh, you set this long-term goal. I'd love to kill a 180-inch mule deer. But then when it comes down to actually daily practices and you want to do wind sprints and shoot, but you get out on the range and you're like, you know what? I'm kind of tired. I think I'm going to skip the wind sprints today and I'm just going to shoot. It's better than nothing, but it's not as good as it could have been had you done the wind sprints, you know? And so having those midterm goals help keep you accountable to you because that's what makes the difference between the guy who gets to his goals and the guy who doesn't is whether he did those daily difficult things, even when he didn't want to do it. I almost, I'm almost obsessive to a fault when it comes to forcing myself to do the uncomfortable stuff. Cause I'll go almost where I run myself ragged. Cause I'm like, well, I don't want to leave anything on the table. I don't want to go into those competitions knowing that I left something out, you know? So I will run myself ragged where I'm like, ah, I only slept two hours, but that's fine. I'm still going to go to the gym for four, you know? And so I, I walk the fine line between realism and, and, and fanaticism. But, um, it is super important to keep yourself accountable to yourself and to say, okay, this is what I want to accomplish. And this is what I have to do today in order to accomplish that goal. Am I going to do it? And you just have to say, yes, I'm going to do it. What, no matter what it costs. Oh man. Um, yeah. Comfortable with the uncomfortable, you know, I have, um, you know, I can relate to so much of what you just said. Like I, it, it breaks down on the daily level. Like I love that because every day you're forced with those decisions and it's really easy not to do it or not to put in the work to make an excuse to say, I'll do it tomorrow. You know, that, that trail running and I, you know, throughout the years, I really enjoy trail running, but it's still a battle inside my head dang near on the daily, you know, where it's, mm -hmm. oh, it's 90 degrees today. And you almost flip the mindset where you almost want it tougher, you know, where it's like, uh, I want it 90 degrees for, for this. I want to run in the, in the heat of the day, you know, because again, I'm going to be more uncomfortable, you know, which, which is going to make me grow as a person. And a lot of this discipline of making yourself do this and accomplish these smaller goals, this discipline every single day, like it not only translates into being able to trust your body and trust your fitness, but, but that's how you callous your mind. That's how you yep. strengthen your mental toughness. That's how, when you, when you get in the heat of the moment, you know, you're, you're able to give it your all, you know, is because you, you keep, you keep hardening your mind and strengthening it on the daily. You're building that discipline and all it is every day you're faced with the decision, you know, whether you're going to, you know, if it's hunting goals, whether you're going to shoot your bow, whether you're going to get in your workout and you know, your workout, I've got kids too, and I'm running to volleyball and I'm here and there. So some days, you know, I've got to wake up at four in the morning to get in my run, or I've got to stay late after everybody goes to bed and, and have family with my, or have dinner with my family, put the kids to bed and nine 30, I'm out hitting the trail, but it's that yeah. daily discipline that gets you to where you want to go. Yep. I can't tell you how many times I've done workouts at either the very, either pre-dawn or post post sunset hours because 
it is important to, t to take good care of the people in your life and it is important to make them a priority. So oftentimes that means, okay, well, I can't, I'm not going to get to this workout in the daylight. That means I have to do it. I said I was going to do it today. So I have to do it even after the kids go to bed or something like that, you know? Yes, I said I was going to do it today, so I've got to do it. I've got to find the time and make the time. And I don't even know if all the time, if you're doing your body right, like you say, you run yourself ragged, I do the same thing because I'm running day after day and I'm thinking I got these tough wilderness hunts or back-to-back -back hunts. And so I want to run every single day, you know, because I, I, want to, I want to wear myself down and be tired tomorrow and make myself do it. And like I say, I don't I don't know if I'm always doing my body right. When we run ourselves ragged, sometimes it'd be better to take a day off. But that yeah. that mental strength, uh, that mental discipline of making yourself do it, I always feel better after I work out, after I run. I always feel good. I never feel worse. I always feel better. But I still have to make myself do it. I mean, there's some days where I sit at the trailhead. And I sit in my truck for five minutes, and I've gotten better over the years, and now I just get my butt out of the truck and get up the trail, and I know I'm going to feel better. But a lot of times, I'm in there having an argument with myself. Uh, I've driven all the yeah. way out here. I've done this. Like, I, I need to get on the trail, or, you know, it's easy to make excuses. Like, the other day, you know, I got out on the trail, and I like to do, like, this this 1500 foot climb and it's about six miles or so in the mountains. And so, you know, I was heading up to that spot. Well, this lightning storm came in and it was pretty bad. I've been up there on top before and I found like a dozen dead cows that were struck by lightning one spot. So I know it's a gnarly spot and I can uh. kind of read the weather coming in and I know it's going to be right over top me. So I'm forced, like I can't get my 1500 feet. I can't get the six miles. But what I can do is I can run back down to the bottom and I can run back up to the top of that hill and back down. You know, that's that discipline of just not letting myself off easy, like making sure I get in that those miles and that elevation I want, because I know it's going to pay dividends come season, you know. Yep. And uh, another thing that I can say, since we're going down this this uh, this interesting trail we're on, um, is it's it is important to know when to um to have an approach to peaking um, because the reality is you're never going to be able to sustain your peak. So like for me, in terms of going into the season, I know that I want to be at peak strength by the biggest, whatever I say is the biggest competition of the year. You know, obviously in an Olympic year, that's going to be the Olympics, but a lot of other years that's X games, which is in January, late January. So I want to peak in late January, which means that I can't, be at my peak in September because then I would have to keep that peak for months and that's just not sustainable. So you, so there is, a, there is a balance there to knowing when you want to be at your absolute highest performance and being able to rest at the right times and then ramp it up at the right time so that you are ready at the right time. Because if you try to just get to a peak and sustain it, you're going to be both mentally and physically fatigued by the time you get there. So, um, yeah, it's, it's all about finding that balance and also being realistic about it too. You, you, there are days, um, where it just doesn't happen. So you, you have to assess that. You say, okay, I, I, I had planned and anticipated to be, to have gotten my, the four mile run in yesterday. I didn't do it. So today I'm going to run six instead of, instead of, you know, three or whatever. And just, you know, you just have to be able to adapt on the fly or else you're, you're just going to ruin yourself. 
Yeah. Um, no, you're right. You're going to burn yourself out, right? And you're right. It's peaking at the right time, peaking for that hunting season, too. You know, it it does you no good to be peaked by May or June, you know, when, when hunting season is in September. Because you're right. I can't sustain that every single day, tons and tons of miles in elevation. Like, um, you're right. You're trying to hit your peak. And, and I also, you know, like to be... To, to be real, like, yeah, things do come up. And, um, you know, there is going to be days where you can't get to it or, you know, like running a construction company. You know, there's some days where we're pouring concrete and I end up finishing that slab till late and I come, you know, and it doesn't work out. But right. I, I like what you say, it like uh, uh, reassessing it and then going, OK, today I'm going to do more. And and I think, you know, as as you look at yourself um, you know, I can tell like you're always trying to improve. And I, you, you talked earlier ab- about a stock and you said, you know, if that stock doesn't go right, that you try to make that pathway of, of what you could have done to make it go right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, when like that self-reflection and being honest with yourself and looking at stuff like the, your ego gets involved so much of the time, it's so easy to make an excuse and be okay with it. Yeah. And I, I think you have to be real with yourself, and that that goes for working out and your training. And, and your ego makes wants to make you feel really good about yourself and make you feel like you're doing everything right. And it wants to say, "Oh, it's, oh, it's okay. You didn't make that run today. You were really busy today." Yeah. You know, and that self evaluation of looking at it and going, "Okay, I I was really busy. I didn't get in my run, but I'll I'll get that work in tomorrow." And the same thing, like on a stock or on a shot, like being real with yourself. If you miss the shot. You know, it, it's easy to say, you know, you jump the string, which I said on the antelope earlier, which he really did jump my string. But, you know, what? it's easy to make an excuse that doesn't hurt your ego to where yeah. if you look at it and you really look at it and you go, God, I I jerk my shot on that thing. You yeah. have to be real with yourself to make improvement, I think. Yeah, I think you're I think you're without even saying the word you're talking about humility uh, because pride gets in a way in the way of us a lot of times pride gets in the way of progress a lot of the time because like you said everybody wants to feel like they did everything right all the time naturally because we're trying to do everything right all the time where the reality is we're not going out there just saying oh i'm gonna i'm gonna mess a bunch of things up today i just expect it you go ah i'm gonna try to do i'm gonna try to do everything i can as well as i can do it so but but having the the humility to say i did my best, but I certainly made a mistake here, or I certainly didn't, you know, shoot that shot very well or whatever. And being able to admit that to yourself is huge. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've, I've come out of a stock. And the first thing I want to do is convince myself that it was completely not my fault. Oh, the wind's world, man. It's not my fault. The wind's world. It's like, well, you're in, you're in a sketchy spot. And if the wind had stayed perfect, you'd have been fine. But actually had you been a little bit more patient and gone a little bit further around, you would have removed that possibility entirely or whatever, you know, that yes. it, you just have to, you have to be able to assess yourself realistically and just say, I am not perfect. That obviously didn't work out. So is there something that I can pick on and learn from? And that's, you know, and that's something you do on every single blown stop, even on the ones that succeeded admitting to yourself, man, I got kind of lucky there, you know, um, the, the mouflon that I finally knocked down in Hawaii was one of those situations where I got kind of lucky and I can admit that I could say, Hey, 
I had one that was just in the right place at the right time for me, and I got to draw back and shoot it. And I'm grateful that I got that, but had it gone a little bit differently, it would have easily gone wrong. So, so assessing, look, being able to look back on the situations that you've been through and see where you could potentially have done better is huge. Yeah. Well, and just like everything we've talked about, it's also a fine line. You also don't want to dwell on it or beat yourself up over it. Like shooting tournaments is a is a perfect example. You can drop a couple shots and get inside your own head or dwell on those couple shots, and all of a sudden you shoot bad for the rest of the day. Or you can shoot that bad shot, realize what you did wrong, and, and admit it to yourself, and then move on, you know? And, yep. And like it's um it's a fine line to not dwell on it, not beat yourself up over it, but you know to to really look at it and and assess it you know honestly of what you could have really done better or how you could improve. Yeah. Yeah. Well, dude, so much fun getting you on the line. What a great conversation diving into um you know just the the mental aspect of, of life in general, but especially of hunting. Uh, yeah, you have such a great uh, introspective look at things, man. You're a really fun conversation. Yeah, man, it's been it's been great chatting with you. I've been really enjoyed it. Yeah, congratulations. Um, so yeah, you were successful in Hawaii. I know you got back and you had a Nevada cow tag, and you told me that that's your elk meat for the for the year. That you take that tag pretty seriously. It didn't take but a couple days, and I saw a photo come through of a cow. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where, um, I talked earlier about opportunity is either a lot of times it's either quality versus or or it's quantity and we have some of the biggest elk you know bull elk in the in the nation here in nevada but that means there's not a lot of bull tags available so um in terms of herd management they end up giving out quite a few cow tags so uh i treat my my cow elk tags almost the way you know your typical idaho montana utah hunter would treat you know over-the-counter bull tags like this is a big deal to me i need this meat for the freezer and uh it's one of my opportunities to hunt elk for the year so um you know we backpacked in i think i shot my cow seven and a half miles from the truck and had a massive pack out and, an, and another buddy of mine shot one as well so we did two two seven and a half mile pack outs in two days and um darn near killed ourselves doing it but now i have now the freezer looks really good right before you know i shot that mouflon in hawaii but those things aren't very big so you know having got one in hawaii that was great um but the freezer was just looking a little pitiful and now i open it up and i just it makes my heart sing the the bow hunter in me is just so much more content and so now that kind of empowers me to be a little bit more choosy about the things that I hunt too. So I'm going out tomorrow after Nevada mule deer and uh, I can be a little bit more picky. I can, I don't have to say, Oh, I need to shoot any buck. I can say, okay, yeah, I want to shoot a four by four or better or whatever, you know? So I, I, I love, I almost enjoy only having a cow tag to start the year off because it's like, all right, this is a true meat hunt. I'm not out here trophy hunting. I'm not out here with any pride on the line. I am just here to, literally go out and hunt for my food and my family's food and uh so yeah i i, I feel like I, I lucked out and i got one and I'm, I'm very thankful that the freezer's looking good right now yeah how cool well um dude you're such a, a great steward uh for hunters out there and um you're really meticulous with your meat and your meat care um you're just the perfect role model for us so um yeah i couldn't be happier that you're hooked on bow hunting um i know you're gonna have a bunch of success in the future so thanks a bunch david man i really appreciate it 
Absolutely. And if anybody wants to tune in to my journey, um, I keep my worlds a little bit separate in terms of Instagram. I have my Mr. David Wise as my normal Instagram account. Um, and then for all the hunting stuff, because not everybody who follows me through the Olympics wants to see my hunting stuff. So I have a separate account. It's called Wise Off the Grid, Wise OTG. So if you guys want to follow us there, um, I, I post live stories of every hunt that I go on and then, or semi live at least. You, you never know if you're going to have cell service or not. Um, and then I have a YouTube channel as well. So uh, thank, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, Brian, for having me on. And uh, I look forward to hopefully getting some pins and texts from you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I found that uh, Instagram the other day. Great content and great story, too. Uh, you do a good job of capturing it semi-live like that. That's a really fun way to capture the hunt that doesn't take away from it much, right? It totally does. Yeah, if you're trying to self-film everything and really put something quality together, it is twice as hard. But when you're just running gun, I, I shoot most things on my Sony Handycam. You know, it's a great way of capturing it and having it for yourself, but also being able to show people how it was. And so whenever people ask me how the hunt was, I always just tell them, look, go, go look at the Instagram story because, uh, that's much better than I can explain it in words. I mean, I could tell you the story. I love telling stories, but you should go watch that first. It's so true. Yeah. I've been directing people to my story too. Yeah. It just tells a, a better story. Pictures worth a thousand words and you put enough pictures and photos and text together, uh, yeah, people can get a real feeling from the hunt, which it's nice to share with like family and friends that don't hunt as well. They're able to follow along on the story and kind of see the journey. So yeah, it's a really cool deal you're doing, David. Thanks, man. All right, we'll talk soon. Talk to you later. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Oh man, was that a fun conversation? Yeah, that's just um, like I say, to be able to sit down with somebody that's become the best in the world at something. Uh, you know, he's tapped into something, in into his dedication and his mindset. And to be able to break all that down and then relate it to, to bow hunting and, and what I love to do, um, it's just amazing for me. I really enjoyed it. So thanks to David for taking the time as well, and uh, hope you guys enjoyed it. I want to thank our sponsors for today's show, Sig Sauer Optics. Uh, they're just building great optics. I'm really enjoying that new scope they came out with. And then also make sure to check out that BDX system that, you know, your scope, your rangefinder, and your phone all talk together to configure exactly where to aim. It's a pretty cool deal. And then um, I also want to thank Taito Knives, uh, just the best ultra lightweight replaceable blade knives on the market. They also make a fixed blade knife. They make like a, a mix between a fork and a spoon that will attach to that. Uh, I've been using their fillet knives for butchering. They just have great products. They're a great company. If you're in the market for a new knife, make sure to check out Taito. And with that, yeah, what a season. Man, oh man, has this been fun. Um, just trying to get back here to uh, normal life, back to being a civilian here. Gosh, I've just been chasing adventure here for, for so long and come back and get my work done and then gone again. But uh, finally back to the house here for a stint. So, um yeah, I really want to be the best family man I can be, the best husband, uh, best father. So yeah, I just um, I uh, just spending quality time that um, you know, making that time count. Like uh, it, it just these hunts they give you such perspective on your life and what's important and what you need to focus on. And and uh, family is definitely one of them. So yeah, I'm gonna make some volleyball games. I got a volleyball game tonight, and. Um, 
yeah, just go do some fun things here with the family. And um, I do have a couple more hunts coming up. And so uh, I'm sure I'll be looking forward to those. I'm getting all my gear put back together and put away and organized. And um, oh, it's still shooting the bow like a madman. I mean, I come back, I don't even have a day off and I'm running, you know, I, uh, I, I love working hard towards my goals and, uh, I just love putting in the work and, um, part of the enjoyment for me is, is, um, all the work leading up to it and then to be able to be successful. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm back on the trails. There's no days off and, um, shooting that bow like a madman and going to make just a couple little changes here before, um, mule deer season. So got those in the works and, um, yeah, I'm pumped. Life is good. Um, podcast is doing good and business is doing good family and everything. So yeah, we're, we're sitting good over here, man. I'm, I'm super fortunate. So, um, I just want to thank you all you guys for the support of the podcast and social media and me. Um, it, it's really humbling to have all you guys follow along and, um, receive positive support. So, uh, I really appreciate it. And, um, just much respect to you guys, uh, everybody out there trying to improve and trying to get better and, um, I've seen and shared in some of your guys' success this season, which is just awesome. Uh, I love when the the information on the podcast help makes the, help helps make a difference to to make you guys successful. I mean, that's the whole goal of this thing. And there's a lot of different podcasts out here, and I'm and I, I'm just really glad that you found this one and gravitated towards it. And I just want to continue to bring you guys the absolute best content I can and you know, share my journey with you guys, uh, my journey of bow hunting, you know, these different public land spots. I mean, public land hunting is so tough and not that there's anything against private land. It's just, um, man, that I just much respect to anybody that, that is able to harvest off public lands because it's, it's pretty much all hard work and determination. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's a grind out there and it's tough. And there's a lot of guys that are going really hard to be successful. And, um, so yeah, much respect and and thanks to you guys and um thanks for the support of the podcast and that's a wrap. I'll get that elk podcast out and then we got some great ones coming up. Um I got Ike next week on Sage Bucks and like I say he's put down two good bucks this year so um fun conversation with him and um yeah, some great ones coming after that and then working on new ones like always. So um some great content coming your guys' way. We'll have some great Beyond the Grids coming up. I'm really hoping this Montana elk hunt, we just filmed it. Um, hoping that comes out on a Beyond the Grid as well as the the Eastman's TV. So I'll let you guys know about that. And then, um, yeah, I better I better check in here to Eastman's and uh, look at that Beyond the Grid and see what we got coming up. Because I'm sure, I mean, Dan and uh, Guy and everybody there at Eastman's has been working so hard at this Beyond the Grid and just putting out some really good episodes. So I can't wait to see some of the new stuff out. And um, so I'll get you guys that information. But with that, till next week, talk soon. <laughs>